0: being paid to think is quite a privilege. And I think that privilege comes with a duty, and that duty is to engage with society. Europe needs to to develop its own political space. And I'm, I'm deeply committed to advocate for this space to emerge. We need to allow everybody to have a chance to contribute. So time has come to reinvent democracy and the engagement of citizens into our policy process.
1: Ever since he realized that his scientific publications had very limited reach and impact on society, he decided to reshape his research agenda and to pioneer new forms of academic and civic engagement in order to bridge the gap between research and the reality he has experienced. The reality of a democracy urged to renew itself. The reality of citizens who long to make their voices heard. The reality of Europe on a quest for legitimacy. The reality of our society shaken by unprecedented challenges. Through the knowledge he produces, Alberto aims to bring solutions that address the different realities he has come to confront. He aims to offer answers to fundamental questions. He is an advocate for change. Alberto Alemano is professor of EU law at HEC Paris, an author, a civic entrepreneur, and a public interest advocate. He certainly embodies a new form of an engaged intellectual. He is the kind of academic our world on fire needs. Alberto Alemano is our fifth guest on Tomorrow Is Our Business, stories of people who choose to have an impact on others' lives.
0: I'm first and foremost an academic. I do research, I teach, so that's what I do. But over time, I, um, due to my public engagement, I also start wearing different hats. And I also became a social and civic entrepreneur because I set up a nonprofit called The Good Lobby. I think what drives most of my work and my motivation is, is impact. So I really try to do work that might affect people's life for better. And I try to do this with my research, with my teaching and with my public engagement. So trying to transform my work into social impact.
1: Before we explore the many facets of Alberto's engagements, there is something important that we should not miss. He is, first and foremost, a European.
0: Well, Europe certainly uh, lies at the centre of my work, but also my life. It's the subject of my research work, but is also the object of uh, let's say my entire reflection and in, in life. So I'm an Italian, I teach in uh, France, but I also spend a lot of time in Brussels. I'm married with a Spaniard and uh, Europe for me is not only a geographical notion, but it's also a mental space in which I've been living and been growing. So when I deal with Europe, I certainly do more than just studying a discipline.
1: As an academic, Alberto has a mission and a strong opinion of what should be the role of academics in society.
0: Well, I think as, a, as an educator and, and a researcher, my objective is to facilitate a better understanding of complex phenomena. So what I really like and what gives me satisfaction is to unpack something very complex uh, that we don't have the time to actually uh, think through and to provide elements to the public debate so that many more people can somehow master it and take a, a take on this. And, and this is difficult to, to, to find because uh, we live in a very silo-based society. It's very difficult to cut through all those silos. And, and this has a cost for society because too often major decisions um, are driven by biases, misunderstandings, ideologies, dogmas, and at the end of the day, we all pay a cost for the absence of a public debate which is, which is informed. So society is worse off, or worth off as, as a result of this. And I think my major mission is to actually play a role uh, in, in actually contributing to a more informed debate. So in a nutshell, I think I really care about engaging uh, with, with other actors, sometimes people who disagree with me, and, and trying to to make the debate richer because if we have a richer debate with many more voices many more interests represented it we're going to get better we're going to take better decisions and we're going to live in a better society
1: in the era of misinformation fake news and conspiracy theories academic voices like albertos are needed more than ever but unfortunately Being part of the public debate is not a widespread practice among his peers. He explains.
0: Well, I think um, academics historically have been playing an important role in unpacking reality. At the end of the day, we are paid every day to study, do research, think. And being, being paid to think is quite a privilege. And I think that privilege comes with a duty, and that duty is to engage not only in the classroom with your students, but to engage with society, to engage with people, with your family, your friends, and the people beyond that. And I don't think we're doing this enough. I think academia, because of the duty of the specialization, this kind of idea we need to specialize on something, but we are not entitled to speak about anything else, we feel this kind of chill effect. We don't want to take a position on issues that are far from our specialty. And even within our discipline, uh, we tend to stick to our academic journal, to our epistemic community. We are not trained to engage with with society uh, as a whole. We are not trained to speak to a journalist. We are not trained to take part in a public debate despite the fact that in France exists a tradition of of public intellectuals, of academics who engage, but they still represent a small minority. And the incentives we receive as academics to engage with the public are very limited. Nobody really cares about this. What matters is the books you publish, the scientific articles, the citations, very quantitative proxies that don't really capture the value that academics might play in society. And nowadays... The world is on fire, it needs help, it needs ideas, it needs engagement, it needs unpacking and translation. Uh, I think we really need to rethink about the role academics play in society.
1: Alberto's stand in this matter is the fruit of his own personal journey, from a young researcher with his 10 readers to the conceptualization of a new research circle.
0: Yeah, I think uh, over time, approximately 10 years ago, when I became a professor here at Ashosea, after a few years of only research, only teaching, a lot of this, I realized that uh, my potential for contributing to the public debate was greater than what I could channel through the traditional scientific papers, academics, and classrooms. And that was a bit the trigger that led me to experiment new waves of engagement with with the media, with with nonprofits, with, with philanthropies, And this led me to basically build an entire ecosystem of actors who have some interest for for building that infrastructure uh, that today, today is lacking. So I think this is just one possible way any academic, any researcher might actually take to expand what I call the research cycle. In the old days, the research cycle was about having an idea writing for two years a scientific article, getting it published, and having 10 people reading it. This is pretty reductionist, but it's still the dominant model. But if you expand the research cycle, as soon as you have an idea, you write a blog, you you write a tweet, you write a thread, and you get those ideas circulating. And you're already out there, you engage with people, you improve your idea, you test by experimenting it and then you write an essay, perhaps a notepad, then you write a research article, but then the research article one is out also had to be translated again into a notepad, into into a blog, into an essay. So this cycle is very large, but we need to create it. And and, and it's not out there. Nobody's teaching us how to do these kind of things. You need to experiment with different formats. Nobody tells tells you how to write a notepad. Nobody tells you how to write a blog. Something you have to learn on, on your own. And again, you need to be incentivized to actually do all these kind of things instead of just stopping and dropping the pen after your research article has been accepted by a scientific journal. I think this is the challenge, to really systematize all what is around research and knowledge production nowadays.
1: As head of the HEC Paris Law Department, Alberto tries to disseminate his vision of an academic engaged with society, a position that resonates with his colleagues.
0: Many of these ideas that try to transcend the traditional role of the academic into society have been getting into the law department over the years, and internally, I see more and more desire and thirst uh, for from colleagues to actually engage uh, with, with the public at large, in particular with the media. Um, so I think, yeah, there has been a change. Uh, certainly, the pandemic times. Certainly the acceleration we see in the media environment, which is very fragmented, allow us, academics, to have many more opportunities to shape the debate. The incentive mechanism remains limited, meaning that you're doing this as a good citizen, uh, but in reality you do it because you feel a duty to actually do more and you also draw a personal satisfaction. So I think it's, it's win-win also for the research, which becomes more real. I think Alberto is right, and he has persuasively shared that with us. I think the department agrees.
1: David Restrepo-Amarilis is Associate Professor in the Law Department, specialising in data law and artificial intelligence.
0: Research, uh, to be meaningful, uh, requires some impact, and the impact goes beyond academic research, citing the same paper over and over again. Do We want research to have an impact and impact beyond citations. We need to connect research with society, we need to connect research with uh, public policy, and we need to connect research with business. And I think Alberto is persuasive. We have to convert technical knowledge from research, which is what pushes knowledge beyond state of the art, uh, and translate it into the policy debate, into the business debate, into the civil society debate, in a way that is accessible to everyone.
1: The ties between research and the economic and political affairs may raise the question of scientific integrity. How far can a researcher go when taking a stand in the public debate? We asked Alberto about the red line not to be crossed.
0: No doubt that line exists. Uh, I think any academic is bound to a a set of of duties, uh, integrity, uh, clear methodology, transparency, accountability on the way in which we gather the information and we develop our will formation, we cannot really go beyond that. We need to stick to that. That's our background. It's like a doctor making a, a, a swearing-in for, for these particular values. Um, but uh, this does not prevent us as academic after we have, de- we have done our homework, to actually take a, a side, to take a stance on a particular issue, to say what we think. Uh, it becomes uh, tricky and problematic, and this is the red line, when an academic is actually paid to take a stance. So he's writing a, a, a memo or he's writing an a op-ed because he's actually paid by a corporation or he's paid by a, a foundation. Um, this is problematic unless he has a genuine or she has a genuine opinion on that issue. And nobody can really check. At the end of the day, everything is left to your own uh, commitment uh, with, with yourself, with your own values. Um, but what we see, I, I, I would say, um, in a very low trust society, we see the attempt by many actors, in particular companies, to look for academics, because academics are still trusted, uh, at least more than many other professions, to actually take a stance, to actually say, well, at the end of the day, Pricing carbon is a better idea uh, than relying on not market mechanism in order to tackle the climate change uh, situation. Um, But drawing a line between your academic input and your personal input is, is a difficult exercise, and I think we need to be humble about it and very honest.
1: If you follow Alberto Alemano on Twitter you will understand right away that he does not hesitate to take a stand on many current political and societal issues, especially when these concern Europe. Banking on the strength of his academic findings, he advocates for the democratisation of the European Union.
0: So Europe is certainly incomplete, and this is what the pandemic showed us. The European response to COVID has been uncoordinated, has been, uh, it costed life because if Europe had a stronger, faster reaction, we would have saved life, we would have had a much more effective response. But at the same time, it showed that Europe can actually tackle pan-European transnational challenges like the health crisis and then the financial crisis. But there's still one lingering issue, which is the so-called democratic crisis, the fact that at the end of the day, there's a bit of a mismatch between our European way of life Socioeconomically integrated, and our political life, which is still very national. And unless we fill the gap between this extremely European socioeconomic life we all have in one way or another, and our political life, which remains very national, we are not going to be able to create that kind of European political space enabling us to tackle pan European challenges from climate change to the pandemic response in a way which is convincing. Because otherwise, you're going to be living in a fiction in which everything is decided in national capitals, when in reality, the major decisions are already taken in Brussels. But we don't necessarily see this. And this lack of intelligibility is what is preventing Europe from being understood, appreciated, enjoyed by people, because there's a bit of a blame game, right? Everything that is wrong in every European country might be angry, might be... Uh, Sweden, it might be France, is always Europe's fault, right? But this kind of blame game, uh, I think now, is no longer tenable because people are realizing that at the end of the day, most of the key decisions are no longer taken in the national capitals. They are taken together and they have much wider and deeper consequences. The inconvenient truth is that after 70 years together, European citizens do a lot of things together, virtually everything. We do business, we get married together, we travel around, but we don't really do politics together. So that's the only thing Europeans don't do together. And the reason for that is that structurally we don't have a pan-European competition, right? If you want to be a politician, you need to run locally or nationally. There's no way you can run at the European level. And even the European elections, which are the only European political moment, is something we organize in 27 countries, voting on different dates, voting for national parties, not European, voting for national candidates on national programs. So much about European politics. So unless we Europeanize the competition, we're not going to be able to Europeanize the political actors, meaning the European parties. European parties today are just a sum of national parties that they come together in Strasbourg for, let's say, self-serving objectives, getting funds, getting speaking time in the European Parliament. And this is very problematic because over the years, this lack of accountability and opacity has somehow insulated the European political systems from scrutiny. Citizens are not able to exercise accountability on the Commission. Otherwise, Ursula von der Leyen will no longer be the President of the Commission because at some point there's been an issue on the vaccination procurement. But there's no mechanism. And that's why we had the dieselgate. That's why we had a major issue on European migration with a lack of political agreement. Because we don't really know who to blame at the end of the day, right? There's always a kind of a shared blame between the national, the European level. And to change this, Europe needs to develop its own political space. And I'm I'm deeply committed to advocate for this space to emerge, and um, I've been working on this since the the end of the 90s when I was still a student, really trying to push for the creation of pan-European parties and trying to think how we can get there, what kind of transformations we need to make it happen on the electoral competition ahead of 2024, the next European elections.
1: In the introduction of this podcast, I told you that Alberto coins new concepts. Here's one. Citizen lobbying. A new theory and practice of citizen participation, a reflection on democracy, that he has developed in a book entitled Lobbying for Change. Find your voice to create a better society.
0: Don't ask me to to define what a better society is. Uh, But certainly today there is um, a demand for, for change, for moving away from the status quo, and this is imposed on us by major transformations happening. We are becoming aware that we are responsible as humans for the major planetary transformation ever. And in order to do so, we need to be uh, open to, to radical transformations and to radical ideas. And among the many areas in which we should focus our attention on, certainly there is democracy. Democracy is something that has never really uh, been changed. We've always been trying to emulate what Athenians, uh, the citizens in Athens, have been doing. But it's pretty clear that we're doing this in a completely different time. In a nutshell, in I think what we need to change is to break the monopoly of knowledge that representatives do have. We need politicians, but politicians need citizens more than ever. And the future of democracy will all be about trying to find way to better connect citizens, the electorate, with their representatives. And for this, voting is not enough. Voting is just the initial point, but then we need to make sure political leaders remain in touch with their base, with their citizens, and in order to do so, we need citizen lobbying, we need citizens' assemblies, we need participatory budgeting, we need many more new democratic innovations that make Participation complementary to representation. We see this happening at the European level, the Conference on the Future of Europe. For the first time, Europe is setting up panels with randomly selected citizens, 800 coming from all over Europe, setting the agenda for the next Europe we want to have. This is transformational, this is historical, it's the first time in which citizens are recognized as the ultimate source of legitimacy for the Union. It's not the member states, it's not the European institutions, it's the citizens. It's happening now in 2021, and we still don't know what is going to be leading, but it's happening. And this, again, is historical. That means that we are taking much more into account that without citizens' demand, input, participation, we are not going to be able to build a new social contract because that's what we are talking about. We need to find a new agreement between different um, components of society that today in a law-trust society no longer work together because they don't trust each other. And to build this new social contract, we need new forms of social engagement where everybody has a role to play, from academics, from political leaders, all the way to ordinary citizens who have very little time to devote to politics, but who are those affected by major political decisions. So time has come to reinvent democracy and the engagement of citizens into our policy process.
1: The citizen lobbying he is pushing for is far from the idea you may have of actions generally associated with controversial corporations' practices.
0: Lobbying, if you think about it, is just a synonym of participation. It's you writing a letter to your politician, it's about asking her to act, to visit your village, your town, and to care about your issue. So lobbying is the most uh, basic, legitimate form of participation. It's something that should exist in any society. The problem with lobbying is that it has been hijacked by a few actors, mainly companies, but also some organized interests, to the point that we are all a bit scared about even pronouncing the word lobbying. But lobbying is basic. Democracy needs more lobbying, not less lobbying, because the more lobbying we have, the greater the participation, the more interests are going to be represented and the better decisions political leaders will be able to take. Nowadays, an average politician is only listening to some voices, the most organized, and his or her decision will only reflect and capture those interests and not all the others. And that's why we need new forms of participation. I think citizen lobbying is just one example. Having citizens to organize exactly like companies do is also a provocation that can change entirely the way in which decisions are taken, how they are informed by a variety of actors. I think there's a, there's a very important paradox that we need to, to highlight. Uh, today, lobbying is basically what is stopping progress. If we're not making any progress on climate change, on taxation uh, by major corporations, is because those companies are stopping, through their lobbying, the decisions by political leaders to actually embark on those reforms. But the paradox is that lobbying on paper is the most powerful way to actually push for progress. Right? There's no other level of change that can enable citizens and groups to push policymakers to accelerate progress. But the way in which lobbying is used is stopping progress. So now the challenge is really to make sure we're going to be investing much more into advocacy, into lobbying from what I call uh, the bottom-up. So my thesis, my theory I'm working on, is this idea of levelling up the society in which we live, enabling many more voices to take a stance in politics. How? There are different ways we can do what we call civic time-off, employers giving free time to their employees to go voting, but also to do volunteering and to engage with their society, doing what I call lobbying aid, which is like legal aid. If you have a great idea, you want to push for a cause, you should be helped by your community, by your city, by your country, in order to be able to build your lobby. All these ideas seem very radical today, but they are... Necessary if we want to strengthen and invest into our democracy. We need to allow everybody to have a chance to contribute to the political process. And again, as we said, voting is not enough. So we need to create an entire infrastructure enabling many more citizens, many more communities to feel part of the political process in the space between elections and to create the conditions for decision makers to actually listen to those voices. Our political leaders are no longer used to listen. They just get the vote, they feel legitimate, and they say goodbye, see you in the next elections. And a few months before, they're going to knock the door again because they need the vote. And this is not sustainable. And that's why we need to spend much more time thinking how we can invest into the critical democratic infrastructure, which is basically political parties, democratic innovation, and the media because without a media space which is informing people, people are not going to be able to have their own ideas and to take a stance and to actually be able to do voting and all the other participation. And all these elements together, they really try to do what I call the leveling up of, of democracy.
1: The day after we talked to Alberto, He flew to Athens for a major international conference gathering political leaders, journalists and prominent scholars on the renewal of democracy. And a few days before Athens, he was sharing his thesis at a European youth forum, uniting more than 100 youth organisations. And on that very same day, in the absence of proper media coverage, he took the helm and reported in a Twitter thread on the debates among the first citizens' panel of the Conference on the Future of Europe. And just a few days ago, he wrote to the President of the European Court of Justice to request that his hearings be live-streamed and accessible to anyone, defending the principles of openness and transparency. These are just a few examples of all the battlegrounds which Alberto is leading and the various public he addresses. But there is yet another group that we didn't talk about, his students. We asked him what he was trying to convey to
0: them. Intellectual curiosity, trying to make them curious about what's happening around them. So connecting what I teach, lecture, discuss in the class with what is happening out there. That's my uh, major message. But also try to teach them to be intellectually promiscuous, meaning not necessarily to share one particular dogma or school of thought. And be flexible, being open-minded, being even ambivalent, because sometimes being ambivalent is, is, is is an intellectual virtue. So these are the major messages. And, right, the idea of engaging with, with the world, with society, is also something I push. You know, I grew up in an educational system which was uh, very much linked to this idea, cogito ergo sum, first I think and then I try to be. But sometimes I say it should be the opposite, right? Try to be out there, try to act and then learn from it. And so I try to flip it and push the students to, you know, to go through that, that road. Hello, Hello, everyone. Welcome to HEC Law Day 2021. Thank you for coming, for showing up. It's a pleasure to, to meet you all. I'm Alberto Lemano. I'm the chair of the law department. I'm speaking on behalf of my colleagues who are here uh, in, in, in the room. Um, let me welcome uh, the classes that together this year will be studying law at Ashose. Uh, this has become a tradition over the years. We try to bring you here together to uh, try to get out of this mess and also to get to know each other by understanding the major transformations that are affecting us at the individual and at the collective level.
1: So- Alberto elaborates his vision of law for individuals and society.
0: I think I should say is much more than a business school. Uh, is a pretty generalist school. Our students are privileged to study from geopolitics to finance to law to public administration, so it's very generalist. And if you look at, I should say, not only as a business school, but as one of these incredible places where you get this full picture, the law is possibly the only discipline that actually draws that big picture. Everything, finance, marketing, management, everything happens within the limits and boundaries of the law. And the law, at the end of the day, is the social contract, is the major agreement among different stakeholders. They say, okay, we're going to live together, and in order to live together, there are certain rules we need to respect. So studying law, I should say, is not like studying law in a university. Is really getting a sense of the macro picture. Uh, what is the balance of interest among these different actors? Uh, how the political system can take better decisions by using the law? So law is, is a tool, but is also the end because this is the again the social contract in which we, we are. So anyone who intends to not only understand but also operates in the world need a grasp of, of the legal framework and this is the perspective we take at say, in the law department.
1: To conclude this discussion with Alberto in a maybe more introspective way we asked him what was his greatest achievement so far.
0: The fact of preserving um, some freedom over the years, um, is, is what I consider my major achievement. I think it's a privilege mm, to be able to think freely and to speak out freely. This is something unvaluable that I value every day and I feel very privileged. Um, I'm lucky enough to be able to study and to engage with subjects, sometimes very difficult and controversial, uh, and to be able to do this every day without anyone actually telling me that I should not do this or I should rather devote my attention towards another. I think this is a major success, uh, not only for me, but for all my colleagues. Uh, We are free to pick our topics, our teams. And in such a polarized world, I think this is an incredible achievement and something we should all be proud of. And that's also what I'm probably showing to my kids, to my family, Um, this idea that freedom at the end of the day is the most important value in life, right? Uh, Not being tempted by something which is very easy to capture, but then might have a string attached, and that string attached you're going to regret about. I think this is something I... I'm quite proud of. I I don't know whether this is going to last in the future, but it's happening. It happened to my life. I didn't necessarily look for it, but it happened and now I really see how important it is.
1: Alberto, you are engaged on so many fronts. Please tell us this. When
0: do you sleep? I must say over the last few years, I developed this kind of spiritual dimension. So I try to devote some time in addition to the sleep for myself. It might be meditation. It might be yoga. It's a moment for me, for celebrating my own peace, and, and this helps me uh, a lot in, in being then agile and, and perhaps a bit fast and multitasking during, during the day. But the paradox is that um, all my peace and quiet is very often interrupted by my kids. I have three young kids who don't really understand that my yoga is my moment, so sometimes I ended up being uh, juggling with, with the three kids in my yoga position. But the combination of the two works. So I'm I'm quite um, I'm quite uh, peaceful with, with myself with my soul. I recently did one of these archetypes game where they put you into a box, right? You can be many things and it turned out that I'm a muse. So I'm a person who likes to inspire people to do things and act, which is something I never thought of, but actually fits with with an educator. So at the end of the day I'm an educator at heart. I like to educate, I like to share, I like to make people excited to have some haha moment and You know, that's the life I chose and I try to enjoy it.
1: This podcast was brought to you by HEC Paris Business School. Tune in to all the episodes of Tomorrow Is Our Business on your favourite podcast platforms or find them on our website hec.edu